So welcome, good to see you. Glad we could be together this morning. We have some who are still stuck in their houses because of uh, icy, iciness in various areas, but uh, glad to be able to, uh, to be together. If you'll open your Bibles to the first chapter of Revelation, our study will be where we read, where the reading was this morning, and uh, including in that, we, uh, I plan to take a look at the first letter then to the church at Ephesus as well. But this is a major interesting introduction. One of the things that's striking to me about uh, the letters to these seven churches, and please remember the whole book of Revelation is a letter to the churches, but there's these specific messages that are given now to, uh, to Ephesus and the other of the churches there in Asia Minor. But what is striking to us is, is we tend to get to the end of chapter 1, as was just read, and then we say, okay, end of that, now we have these letters to the churches. Please be as one of those churches. A man shows up, a messenger of the church, called in this text one of the angels, angel and messenger, the same, and he holds up a scroll and he says, here is a letter from the, from the Apostle John. And as he begins to read and he gets to verses 9 and 10, you're struck by the fact that before John even delivers the letter, he turns and says, I want you to understand something. This is not just a letter like one of the apostles and like I've written before where God told me something and I'm telling you, I want you to see what I saw. And he begins with this vision of Jesus alive. And then at the conclusion of the vision, he says, now to the church at Ephesus. <laughs> Put a chill in you. He is picturing and just putting Jesus right in front of our eyes and says, now, here's what he said. And each of these letters is written in the first person. As you would see, uh, when Jesus begins to speak in verse 2 of chapter 2, I know your works. So that is the setup, and it is what we need to be really impressed with. Plus, please remember that first century Christians, even though they were nearer to the time that Christ was on the earth, most all of them were in the exact same condition we're in. They never saw Jesus. They are only told about him by the witnesses, by the apostles. Many of the apostles they may never have even met, but have received letters from them, and they've read these letters. And during persecution that took place and began to take place and would get worse, uh, after this book is, is written, what is really striking is to remember that these people are beginning to wonder, was this real? Is he really alive? Is he really the King of kings and Lord of lords? Is he really everything the prophets said he would be, reigning over the kings of the earth? It doesn't feel like it. And we're not seeing him. And is he really there? 
The Gospel John is written so that Christians could have a more perfect belief because there were doubts. 1 Corinthians is written because there were those who were doubting the resurrection. John writes his, his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and begins with, We touched him. We handled him. We saw him. He's trying to get across to these brethren. Do not panic here. And revelation of all of these sets this forth. Imagine how amazing it is, too, to see this picture of the Son of Man. When Isaiah began his prophecy, what did he see? A vision of God, but we're not told what God looked like. When, I, when Ezekiel gave his, his writing, he, gave, he was given a vision of God on the throne, but we do not see what he looked like. And in this case, he says, I want to show you what he looks like. Now, everything that's said is like it. You'll notice, like this, like that. It's not really that. But it is more glorious than even that our minds can imagine. Here is Jesus, the vision, then, of the Son of Man. He began in verse 10 when he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's the only place in the Bible where Sunday... <laughs> is referred to in that way, the Lord's Day, and quite significant, isn't it? It is, it, it is something that we would all say, well, isn't every day the Lord's Day? Well, sure, in a sense. But this was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. This was the day when the gospel was first preached after his resurrection and salvation was given to men. This was the day when the Lord's Supper was taken by churches. This is the day in which churches came together and gave in order to provide for those who were needy Christians and to, and to increase the gospel. This was a significant day. He says this is the Lord's day. It is... I think significant that we treat it that way in our lives. Israel had one day a week, the 24 hours, they were devoted to the Lord. Sometimes we just think in terms of, well, Lord's Day, uh, two hours, <laughs> something like this. Now let me get back to what I want to do. This is the Lord's Day. That is significant. It's, it shouldn't be something that we go by too rapidly. And then the picture is one like the Son of Man, just as a reminder. That is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, when one like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, and there was given him power and might and dominion and a kingdom that he would reign over and a kingdom that would be forever and ever. The emphasis then on this is the fulfillment of prophecy 600 years before in the days of Daniel. And then please notice that he's walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. As we see in verse 20, these lampstands are churches. And that in itself is significant. Seven different lampstands. They are independent of one another. They are unique, but they're bound together by one Father, one Head, one, one Savior, Jesus Christ. And then they, these are distinct churches. These are separate lamps in that regard. But they are lampstands. They are lamps. 
They're shining lights in a dark world. When a church stops shining light, they're no longer what he designed them to be. They are light bearers, just like we would see in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And then he mentions they're golden. I would think that would indicate of great value to the Lord. This is the way he sees us. This is the way then we should act, just like pure gold. And then Christ is in the midst. That, to me, is the most significant. He is in the midst of the churches. He's watching after them. He's counseling them. He's with them. And in these letters, he will even rebuke them. He's leading and comforting. But he's there. He's in the midst of the churches and caring for them. We need to see that that way. We need to think of that in that regard. Jesus is in the midst. And then you see his, his, his outward appearance. And we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because the big picture is what's really important here. A garment that indicates his dignity and his high office and his rank. Uh, his head uh, and hair indicate purity and holiness. And his eyes like a flame of fire penetrating deeply into the hearts of men. Uh, his feet like burnished brass treading on the wicked as Malachi prophesied in chapter 4 and verse 3. Uh, the voice comes out and it's powerful like the voice of many waters, mighty and strong and with authority. <coughs> and his seven churches in his right hand, or seven stars, excuse me, in, in his right hand. These, as we've said, are angels of the churches. The word angel in the, in the Greek is just messenger. Uh, there's a lot of different beliefs about that, probably just referring to these messengers who actually brought uh, the letters. They are in his right hand. He's protecting them and caring about them. And then out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, He's ready to do battle with his words, judging, discerning, convicting. He is the one who comes and his words are going to judge the earth and his words are going to be those in which people can listen to and be saved. And then his countenance is just like the sun, perfect in character. We don't give the, he doesn't give us details, but that is the picture. Here is the vision, and what is important is that he's trying to say and leading us to see this is the one who's in your midst. He sees, he knows everything that is going on. And when you look at it that way, can just consider this, so very important. This is the one that we worship. This is the one who is in our midst this morning. If we have been counted faithful before him. This is the one that we serve. That vision should be in our minds at all times, not just when we come together, because he isn't just among us when we're here. He is among us always. He's watching out after the churches, and he is in our midst. It's an incredibly important point to keep in our minds. How can we offer ourselves half-heartedly to one who is in our midst. The great and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, and God, the Father, who sent Him and did what He's done for Him. 
and the Spirit who's revealed His words to us. How can we worship half-heartedly if we could truly visualize this one who is in our midst? That is extremely important. Notice John's reaction to this. I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) Isaiah trembled with his knees knocking. And John just falls down lifeless at the presence of the king of kings. It's just so overwhelming to him. Jesus' reaction to that is interesting as well. He laid his hand on me. Wow. He laid his hand on me. I don't know what it's like to see a vision. (laughs) But this was real. Jesus lays his hand on him, showing personal tenderness, and says to him, Fear not, I'm first and the last. I'm before everything, I'm after everything. I've got this. You do not have to worry. I'm dead, but I I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. Never to die again. This is victory. I have victory in this. I have the keys to death and Hades. That's the best thing that's written in the whole book. (laughs) I have the keys to death and Hades. Some of, them are, some of you are going to die. You're going you're to get killed by this persecution. I've got the keys. I will open it up again. You do not have to worry. Fear not, as David said this morning in his excellent talk. That's the idea. We need to see every day and appreciate the appearance of him in our midst and walking in our midst, in the midst of Christians, in the midst of these seven churches. You would rather see him now and appreciate what you're seeing than wait till that day and see him then. If we don't appreciate what we're seeing now, there will be a day in which, as Paul said in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But for some, that will not be a pleasant time. We need to appreciate him now for what we see. And then you go from there, and he begins the letters, the personal letters to each of these churches. This morning, we will talk the rest of the time about the letter to the church at Ephesus. First, please consider that Jesus is evaluating and judging churches. I know, Scripture says he evaluates individuals, But in this case, he's evaluating and judging and and measuring churches. That ought to stand out to us. In fact, Chip referenced this a little this morning in our class. That's to stand out to us. He is evaluating how a church of his people, how a group of his people functions together. Somebody says, well, you know, I I don't need church then you are outside of what he evaluates and judges and walks in the midst of. Come on. What a beautiful picture. He has intended for us to be a body of believers, loving, caring, studying, praying for each other and together. He's intended these things. He's intended connections and deep love and care. That's the way we get strong. And when we avoid that, 
We ruin the very thing that he, in, that he intended. This is Jesus saying to the church at Ephesus. Now, all, there are seven churches. You say, well, I guess we're not in the part of No, no, no. As every single commentary has, that's ever been written on the book of Revelation has said, rightly so. The seven churches represent a composite of every church that's ever been. And when he writes to one, he writes to all. In fact, at the end of each letter, he says, Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Oh, oh, you mean me? Oh, yes. Even though you're not at Ephesus or Sardis or one of the other churches. This is the beauty of what he indicates in, in this text. And then you look at these words. Every single letter begins with these words. I know your works. Mm-mm-mm. You ever think, well, God, is, is he really seeing this right now? Is he really seeing what we're doing? He says, I'm in the midst. I walk in the midst of the churches. I know your works. He knows the works individually. He knows the works collectively. I know what you're doing. Ephesus is so interesting because when you look at this church as he describes it, I know your works. Now, if you're the church at Ephesus, let's be Ephesus this morning. You're the church in Ephesus and the reader stands up and he, and he gets to this point after this beautiful vision and he says, I know your works. I don't know about you, but I, I am, my, my, heart, my heart rate has gone up. The, the adrenaline is running. I know your works, and you're going, what's he going to say? What, what, what's he going to say? I, I hope we've done all right. I've got, I've got that vision in his mind. Are we okay? I know your works. And then he begins to say, how many great things you're doing. You're like, oh, Oh, wow. And he, and he starts out, I know your toil, now your patience, your endurance. You work hard. I know what you do. I, I, I see that you don't put up with false teaching and you don't put up with evil people. You won't allow that within your congregation. I, I see that you labor even for my name's sake. You know, that's a biggie. A lot of people labor but are you doing it for you are you doing it to glorify you or are you doing it to glorify him oh, there's a lot of giving people in the world and caring people in the world but in many cases it's only because it makes me look good not god he says you do it for my name's sake you do it to promote me wow you know he's like fist pump very very good you've really done this and you've not grown weary boy that is fantastic ever get a little tired <laughs> as a church and the work we have to do together ever get a little weary a little tired ever get tired when you're working with people who don't respond well and who are always stumbling and stuff get a little weary yes yes he says you don't grow weary wow that's that is absolutely fantastic. You are so strong. It's such a highly regarded church here. When you look at that, you have to think this church would be in the 
faithful churches and uh, of, of the first century. You know, somebody probably compiled a book and said, here's the faithful churches that I know of in Asia and in Macedonia and Achaia and all the, and they collect them and print them, you know, and send them out on the internet. So there, there, there you are. And we, we, we just can appreciate. We, we say, well, uh, is there a church over in that area? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, there's a really faithful church over there. Well, oh, oh well, good. We were evaluated faithful church. Well, if all of those things that he said that were good, if you just look at those, aren't those the same things that you and I evaluate a church today by? Aren't those the things we look at and say, oh, they're a faithful church? Are those the things we evaluate us on? Everything looks good. And just about time, we are beginning to relax as the church at Ephesus and say, whoa, I think we've got this. He says those bone-chilling words. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Oof. Feel the rush through your face. Feel the blood drain out. You feel, oh, uh-oh. You have left your first love. The ESV and some of the others translate, you've abandoned the love you had at first. You know, the word abandon is used in other places for the word divorce. You've divorced me. You found something else you love more. You don't have the love. I'm not your first love. I don't, you don't have what I've asked you to have. I always struggled with that statement until many years ago when I was living in San Diego, a couple came into my office. Marriage was apparently a mess. The woman is bawling. The man is sitting back and going. <laughs> and I said, what's the matter? And he goes, who knows? I'm a faithful husband. You know, I burp and say thank when I get done eating. <laughs> I always come home and give her the paycheck. I'm there for her. I ain't running around. And I look at her and through her tears she said, Yes, you do all the things. But I am not your first love. ESPN is your first love. Football is your first love. Golf is your first love. The newspaper is your first love. All of these other things, that's your first love. It's not me. That hit me. Because not only is that bad in a marriage, that's bad in our relationship, even worse with Christ. We can do all the things. But if those things are not out of love and passion for Him, if He's not the number one object of our desires, we're missing it. It's so easy to do. It isn't it interesting to you that He pictures the relationship as a bridegroom and a bride? Can you imagine if 
a spouse coming to his or her partner, married partner, and saying, I got to tell you something. Don't, don't get in your mind, I'll ever leave you. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be here. I know I can't. I'm not allowed to do that. I'll always be here. I'll, I'll help raise the kids. I'll do my duties as a faithful spouse. But just understand something. I don't love you like I did. I mean, I appreciate you still. I'm glad we have a friendship. But I don't love you. It wasn't, it's not like the honeymoon anymore. It's not like when I first said I do. I've just lost that loving feeling. Are we serving out of obligation? Are we serving out of deep, passionate love for Him? You know, the all-encompassing message of the book of Psalms is that God is our desire. He is the ultimate desire. There is no desire that comes and matches the desire with God. And that's how he pictures a relationship. Can you imagine being a wife hearing that from her husband? Or a husband hearing that from his wife? Yeah, I'll be here. But get it out of your mind that it's out of the love we started out with. Do you remember that uh, Do you remember what it's like to truly love? Pick something. Pick something that was just everything to you. I want to suggest this is the greatest problem, and I don't care what church you want to name, is whether or not Jesus Christ is your first love. That's the biggest problem. That isn't any bigger. And you know what's interesting? It is obvious the difference between those who love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and those who don't. It's obvious. You can see it because at the end of this text, he says, repent and do the works you did at first. It's evident by how, how you love. You can see love in a married couple, and you can see a married couple where it's like a relationship between Walmart and Pfizer. It's compatible. <laughs> it works. But not loving. It's one of the greatest problems. And you know there isn't a preacher, an elder, a deacon, or any Christian on the face of the earth can solve that. Because it has to be solved within you. I remember being that person. I remember not having that love. And I sat down and I opened Matthew and I said to myself, you are going to learn about this person so that you love him. And I didn't get halfway through until my emotions were stirred and I could not ever give it up. I'm still thirsty I'm hungry for him. 
but it takes great effort. You remember that uh, picture here of what he said we have to do? If you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. Just think about that. Here's the thing. If you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You just imagine, if the church at Ephesus didn't repent, and the Lord removed the lampstand, what's going to happen after that? Well, everybody's going to keep coming to church. And everybody's going to keep taking the Lord's Supper, and keep praying, and keep singing, and keep giving, and keep doing all the works He just mentioned of patient endurance, and glorifying God's name. And the Lord's going to say, and I'm not there, you're not my church. Because you don't love me first and foremost above everything else. Wow! That should knock our head off. It's more, obviously. It is everything. If what we do isn't out of He's my first love, you might as well read Amos, because Amos will tell you about it. Oh, he says, I'm so fed up with your worship and your sacrifices and your songs and all that you do. He says, let righteousness flow down like a mighty stream. I'm looking for your love. It has to be the root of what we do. But it starts with you. It starts with me. Having that individual passion because we can't stand it without Him. When you're in love with a girl, you're a young guy and you're in love with a girl, you're a girl, young, and loving with a guy, you can't get them out of your mind. <laughs> you keep talking, thinking about them all the time. You've got to talk about them. And that's what it's like be in love with the Lord. And that's what he's asking us to be. Remember, he has two, three actually main things to do. Here's the remedy. Remember where you had fallen. Go back to the beginning. Again, if you're married, what can you remember? You remember when you were dating. You remember when you got engaged. You remember the wedding. You remember the honeymoon. So exciting, so passionate, so special. All of those things pop for you. Like the wonderful time. Teresa and I had not been married very long, and I cuddled up with her on the couch for a moment, and I said, it's just going to be so nice for us to grow old together. And she stopped me and she said, we are not growing old together. You will grow old, and much later I will. <laughs> she is perfect at blowing a perfectly wonderful, loving moment. <laughs> but you know what it's like. I can't forget it. Love is just that way. Remember when you first came to Christ? Remember? Remember what it was like to know how exciting it was to have found the one who could turn your whole life around and forgive your sins and you're not under that curse of death anymore? 
Go back to the beginning and remember. Do you know what's heartbreaking, though? Some Christians can't remember it because they didn't have the original passion. Why not? Because for them, being converted was just getting baptized. Oh, good, fire insurance. No. If that's where you are or were, go back to the beginning. Fall in love with Him. That's what has to happen. It's not a checklist. This is what it means to serve the Lord. How do you lose that first love experience? How do you lose it? Where did it go? What happened? I would suggest to you that Jeremiah, God's words to Jeremiah, said it all. Listen to what he says. Have you no respect for me? Why don't you tremble in my presence? We tremble in his presence. I, the Lord, define the ocean's sandy shoreline as an everlasting boundary that the waters cannot cross. The waves may toss and roar, but they can never pass the boundaries I set. But my people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned away and abandoned me. They do not say from their heart, let us live in awe of the Lord our God. For he gives us rain each spring and fall and assuring us of harvest when the time is right. Let us live in awe of the Lord. Second command, repent and do the works at first. Every Christian, we all of us regularly need to go through self-inspection. Am I honestly living like I need to live? Am I honestly giving myself to the Lord as I do? Do I honestly love Him as I ought? How much do I need to press on? Certainly so. And the other thing is, you can't approach change. We can't approach repentance thinking this is going to be easy. When we come out of sin, here's what, here's what a lot of us think. This is what I thought. Okay, yeah, I know I'm, I'm over here on this side. I, I, I should be serving the Lord better. But just for a little while, I'm going to have my fun. And, and, and after a while, it won't be long, and, and then I'll just step back over to this side, and there we go. I'll be back in the relationship with God. It's not that easy. Because when you're on this side, you are a hundred feet underground and didn't know it. And climbing back out of a habits of sin and mind that had been saturated with impurity and trying to get back to the love that you're supposed to have for God takes a lot of work and time. Repentance is not easy. And the longer we don't, the easier it is to stay there and harder it is to get back where we should. When you're trying to convince a young person or any person 
not to stay in sin. This is the thing. It is very, very difficult. Do you remember the song, You've Lost That Love and Feeling? I wish I was a good singer. I might sing it for you. (laughs) I'm a bad singer, and I couldn't do it. You've lost that loving feeling. I read all the words this morning. Made me cry to think about what it would be like to say that to the woman you love. You've lost that loving feeling. That's what Jesus is saying here. You've lost that loving feeling. You know what's interesting about the song and it's interesting about what's in the text? Because I've had these conversations with married couples. And I say to one of the spouses, you know, you need to really work at getting this relationship back where it should. And I hear words like this. That may be easy for you to say, but you don't understand. I don't feel it anymore. I don't have that loving feeling. What am I supposed to do? I will never forget. This has been 35 years ago at least. I was changing channels and pop. And right in a conversation with a man and a woman on some kind of show, a movie, I don't know. A man and a woman and the woman is just chewing him out. Because you have left my sister. What do you think you're doing? And he looked at her and he said, I know, I'm sorry, but I just didn't love her anymore. And she said, oh, I didn't realize. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) That's love for you. You know, you have it and then you don't. No, you don't. You choose it. Or not. And the Lord said, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is if you feel it. I want you to repent of this leaving your first love. Of course, (laughs) if you feel it. No. Is it possible? What would you say to a couple like that? What would you say to a person who said that? I would suggest this. First, yes, it's possible. And you know why I know it's possible? Because the Lord gave a command to love your wife. And the Lord made a command to love your husband. And if he made a command to do it, you have the ability to do it. He's not going to command us to do something we can't do. Fix it. And the same thing is true with the Lord. You can love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, because he said to do so. And it's therefore possible to do so. It starts with obeying him. It starts with doing things that at first your feelings don't want to do. I always loved to listen to Dr. Lawrence Lessinger many years ago. Many of you don't even know who she is. Uh, on on radio all the time fixing marriages and she would repeatedly have somebody who would call in and ask a question and she'd give them the answer and they'd say well yeah but I feel and she says I don't care how you feel here is what you are supposed to be doing I thought amen girl 
Lay it out. Stop with the feelings. The feelings will follow your actions. The feelings will follow your pursuit. And that's exactly what he said here. In Romans 12, he actually says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can change how you think. He gave you the ability that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You test it. Why, how do you test it? He said, if you do this, here will be your benefit. Okay, I'm going to give it a try. I don't feel it right now, but I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to pursue you like you said, for me to pursue you. Do the works you did at first. That was his answer. Do the works you did at the first. We would say it this way today. Act yourself into a new way of feeling. What made you want to take a bath every day? I remember when I didn't. And mom made me. And you see that with kids all the time. No, get in there, get your bath. And then after a while when they turn to teenager, you can't get them out of there. Lots of things become something we love to do if we act ourselves into a new way of feeling. Do the works you did at first. The letter to the church at Ephesus is the scariest of all seven letters to me. Got all the actions right. And the love's not there. Great lesson. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus for showing us that. We're going to sing a song. Any way we can help you, please let us know now or afterwards. We'd be glad to discuss that with you as together we stand and while we sing.